again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In The Ring. You may have noticed a little bit of a name change. It's now In The Ring with Acacia Clement, as it's still just me, I promise. Uh, but I did get married. Very exciting over the last couple of weeks. Um, have been going like a crazy person, and that's a little hiatus from the show. But we're back here, um, back with a new name, uh, but still hopefully the same great content here. But I want to say a big thank you to everybody um, who sent great wishes to me and Miguel. Um, we're very excited for this next chapter. Got to go on a little bit of a honeymoon, and then the honeymoon continues when we went to Ocala and the OBS uh, March two-year-old sale. So uh, we've been pounding the pavement and going nonstop for the last month or so. But um, really excited to be back on this show. I have a terrific episode coming up today. It may be one of my favorites that I've done. I have some really, really great guests and people that I really admire greatly. And um, I hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed conducting the interviews. So. We'll recap the two-year-old sales a little bit. We'll also recap some big things that happened this past weekend. And then we'll start after this episode looking ahead to some of the big races as we're getting closer and closer to the first Saturday in May. So hope you enjoy this week's episode of In the Ring. And with that, we'll get right to it. Really happy to welcome in my next guest from West Point Thoroughbreds, Aaron Birkenhauer, and uh, definitely a, a, a boss in every definition of the word, and, and so happy to get a chance to pick her brain a little bit today. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Acacia. Erin, uh, tell me a little bit about your role with West Point Thoroughbreds and, and some of the, the new responsibilities that you've taken on recently. Yeah, so I was just recently promoted to chief operating officer of the company. Um, I work really closely with my parents, and Debbie and Terry Finley, and I want to really give them a shout out. Um, they started this company almost 30 years ago, and they've given me the opportunity to really live a dream and work in an industry I love every single day. So I, in my new role, and uh, I with over 100 horses in training, and we have 600 partners, it's really important that we run smoothly day to day. Uh, we have 11 full-time team members and, you know, keeping everybody on the same page and staying organized and really delivering a top-notch experience for our partners and taking care of our horses are the priority. So that's really my passion is the day-to-day -day working with the team members and working to manage the horses. I communicate with many of our trainers, vets, and farms and work to keep partners informed about their horses. And we have a concierge marketing and sales team. So really just integrating everybody together to keep us a well-oiled machine. Tell me a little bit about working with your parents, um, as is the case with so many, I think, families in racing. It is a family affair. Was kind of going into the family company, so to speak, always something that you wanted to do? No, not really. I went to school. I was in the pre-vet program at UK. And to be totally honest, one summer I didn't have my act together and I didn't have a summer job lined up. So <laughs> I actually started kind of interning for the company under our former late communications director, Kanji DeVito. And he really taught me the ropes, you know, about communication. And that's where I got started. I learned the website. I learned the processes. Um, and I just kind of kept rolling with it. And I graduated from UK, realized I, I didn't really have the passion to be a, a racetrack vet. I wanted to kind of be on the business end of it. So I just put my head down and worked as hard as I could and tried to make my parents proud. And here we are. I think I've been with the company full time for 
uh, 12 years now. So working with parents certainly has its challenges. There are some great things, but one thing we worked really hard is, you know, you've got to separate the personal from the business. You know, we have some pretty strict rules and we hold each other accountable to, you know, when my parents are with the grandkids, we try not to talk business. And, you know, from the hours of say eight to five, we, we just put our heads down and work, but that that's probably the biggest challenge. And, you know, sometimes it's hard because we work in a business that we want to talk about, you know, so it is sometimes hard to kind of draw that line, but they've been, they've been great and huge supporters of me developing my career. And I owe them a lot. You mentioned that uh, your, your school involvement with UK and um, as far as learning that side of things with a goal of becoming a racetrack vet. And I actually started out in college in the same career path. So I completely understand um, where you're coming from and that background. Do you feel like that background of studying those sides of things help you in what you're doing now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I grew up riding, grew up around horses. And I think having the scientific background does serve me well because, you know, I'm not a vet, I'm not a trainer, but I think it gives me the unique ability to kind of bridge the gap and be able to explain things to partners and people who may not have a lot of hands-on experience with horses to kind of explain things in layman's terms. You know, I've seen enough that it really just gives me the community, the ability to communicate with the people who partner with us effectively. You also run the buying team for West Point Thoroughbreds. Tell me a little bit about that role. Yeah. Well, ultimately, you know, my dad's the CEO of the company. Ultimately did the, the decisions are his as to what horses we buy and, and things like that. But we have a lot of moving parts and we, in large part, function as a team. So we really need one center point and that's a big responsibility. And that's a responsibility I've kind of assumed, keeping everybody on track on the sales grounds, keeping us organized. You know, my dad and I work really well together, you know, figuring out, you know, how to get horses bought, which trainers they should go to. Um, And, you know, the sales are, are so dynamic that I think we've really become well-oiled in the fact that everybody knows what they're doing and we go to the sales and we're super organized and that's why we're able to get things done um, in terms of buying horses and that's something that it's I've, I'm proud of I feel like I've really moved that direction or that part of our company in the right direction over the last mm-hmm. few years we just had the OBS March two-year-old sale. I don't think I saw you stand still for more than five <laughs> seconds throughout the entire sale. Um, tell me a little bit about the takeaways from OBS for West Point's new acquisitions. Well, we came away from OBS with 10 horses. They'll be spread out across the country. Five of those horses are actually going to go to John Sadler on the West Coast. Really honored to partner with Mike Talla um, on five of those five horses. We bought quite a few yearlings with Mr. Talla, and I think it'll be a, a really good partnership for us moving forward. And, you know, we went into the sale with a lot of confidence, and that's really due to the tremendous support from our West Point partners. They're the ones who really drive the bus, and owning racehorses is a lifestyle investment. And, you know, we try every day to deliver that experience on several levels. You know, it's performance, experience, access, camaraderie. Camaraderie is probably the, the big one um, that I come back to. We have partners who have made lifelong friends through owning horses. And it was funny. Recently, we had a partner who had a baby. And the godparents for the baby are people that she met through West Point. And stuff like that's really that. cool. And people, we have people who vacation together. They go to each other's houses on Christmas. You know, the reality is a lot of horses don't work out. We all know that. It, it takes a lot of luck and to have a good horse. 
So, you know, there has to be something more than, than just the on the racetrack stuff. And, and that's really something we, that kind of family culture we've tried to cultivate at West Point. It's amazing kind of seeing that going back to that family culture you mentioned too. You see it at the races, in the winter circle, anytime a West Point horse is victorious. That has to be one of the most rewarding things for you all too, obviously winning a huge part of it. But as you said, there really is so much more to that. Yeah, I think one of the, the coolest parts for me is, you know, seeing people from all walks of life. Sometimes people have this notion that you have to be rich to own horses. Not the case. I mean, we have people from all different backgrounds and to see somebody, you know, we've had a couple of people, they owned one horse with us and that horse would be commanding curve. We ran second in the Derby or, you know, they're, and, and that's just awesome. Like to have those people in the winter circle with their friends and family is, is really special. And I like to say when, when people get involved, it's really kind of the only sport that you can participate in with your whole family. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It's just cool. Like seeing people, with their sons and daughters and bringing them back to the racetrack and seeing that joy. And a lot of people, you know, they'll say, this is something that I'm doing because my dad always loved racing and I'm doing it in his honor or their father, their parents are getting older and they want to do it, you know, before their parents pass away. So those kind of things really hit home and make you want to get up every day and work hard and, and have good horses who perform and really give people a good experience when they come out to the racetrack. Going back to the sales, too, I know uh, you came away with some freshman sires represented. And, and what are some of the things that, that you're looking for at these two-year-old sales? The freshman sires are a big thing, you know, especially at the two-year-old sales. Me, personally, I try not to focus too much on pedigree. I mean, to be totally honest, I love it during the breed show to not even have the sire and dam up there. I think that gives you a little bit of an inherent bias. You know, at any sale, you're looking for the athlete. But especially the two-year-old sales, when you can see them on the track, see how they handle the rigors of the sale mentally. That's a big one. You really want to focus on the athlete. And we've bought some really good horses at the sales who didn't have big fancy pedigrees. There's a time and a place for the big fancy pedigrees. I think especially at the year league sales, when you're trying to get horses like Flightline, who is by Tappet out of a graded stakes winner, who you're buying that horse and you're hoping that they perform to a level to get into the lanes and um, stallion barn. But at the two-year-old sales, I think you can come up with horses like Commanding Curve, who I mentioned before, who was second in the Derby. He was by Master Command. I mean, that's not a big commercial pedigree. We bought a New York bred who earned almost a million dollars, who was by a sire named Patriot Act, who most people had not heard of. I really think if if you can put your pedigree bias aside at the two-year-old sales, there's some great opportunity. And the reality is you have to have imagination when you're buying horses. They are not finished products by any means. The imagination part of the two-year-old sales is less so than it is at the yearling sales because when you buy a yearling, you're essentially having to imagine them in six months, a year, two years, three years, and that can be hard to do. Um, so yeah, I, I think coming away with horses, we bought an Accelerate, a, collect, a Collected, a Motown, a Cloud Computing. You're able to buy an athlete. And we did pay good money for those horses, but I would say... If they were by Into Mischief or Tappet, they would be, all of them have the physical attributes to be close to the sales offer. You, you mentioned a little bit about the rigors of the sale and the mental piece of things. And that's kind of one of the things that we're all looking at at these sales too, whatever age group it is. Tell me a little bit about that and, and some of the things that you look for there. 
I mean, it's pretty fascinating when you think about the sales. The mental part of the game is is such an unknown, and pretty much what we're all searching for is an intangible. I mean, we can do all the due diligence we want. I mean, you can do analysis until the cows come home. And the reality is a $2,500 horse may have more raw talent and more heart than a seven-figure horse. That's what that's what makes it fun is really nobody knows. Um, I know there's, a, there's actually a, a quote that I wrote down and I always come back to that Richard Mandela has. You know, you can look for the perfect horse. That may be the ideal goal, but there are no perfect horses and I've seen some near perfect ones that couldn't run and some incorrect horses that could run like hell. <laughs> so good. So you good. just have to kind of figure out, you know, there are certain things that you can't live with. You know, if a horse has a significant soundness issue, mm-hmm. then that will likely inhibit them from showing their true potential. Obviously you're not going to buy them, but you just, you have to know that there's no perfect horse and you kind of have to put all the puzzle pieces together to limit your pool of horses. Okay. Out of this pool of horses, which ones do we think will end up, you know, having the soundness, having um, the durability, and then the big unknown, having the mental capacity to be a top horse? As far as those sales go, we, we just wrapped up a two-year-old sale. Of course, this summer, we'll see a lot more of the yearling sales. West Point also involved often in some private purchases, even horses from Europe. You know, How do you kind of decide how to market whatever horses you buy to your partners or to the specific owners that you think may be a good fit for them? Yeah, so it would be super easy if we just went to every sale and bought all the intimacies and the tappets. I mean, we'd have no problem selling them, but it's got to be deeper than that. And I think when you cultivate trust with your partners and you have a good understanding of what their ownership goals are, I mean, we have some partners who their goal may not be to win the Derby. They want to go to the races all the time. So, And if they live in New York, that may be owning a New York bread or they want to go out to Santa Anita all the time. It's really on an individual basis. You have some partners who... They are going to buy two-term dirt colts every year because they want to get to the Derby. So we find it really important to to buy a good mix. Some people love European horses. Um, as you said, we've had some private purchases. There are a subset of partners where that's that's really their interest. They like the European turfy type horses. So I think that's important. You know, it's it's buying horses that we love. And being able to communicate with partners and match those individual horses with those people. And one thing, you know, dad and I always laugh about is you've got to have strength and you've got to be disciplined when you go to these sales. Because the reality is when the hammer drops, you are the only person, entity, whatever in the world who thinks the horse is worth that much money. Because if they were worth more money, somebody would have bid against you. So, it, you you know, you have to stand up tall when you buy these horses. And as I said before, it it's as much art as it is science. And it's, it's really a game of trying to figure out the ones that are going to get you to the Saturday afternoon races. Of course, as you said, those Saturday afternoon races, that's why we're involved in this game at the end of the day. But um, as we both know, there's so much more to that, to the sport. And then after horses are done racing as well, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about your involvement in aftercare. Cause I know that's such a big piece of your heart and you have a horse that was one of my favorite horses in training in twilight eclipse now too. So I, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about that and why you feel that aftercare focus is so important. Yeah, that was one of the big things when I started working for the company 12 years ago. I really took our retirement program. I grabbed the bull by the horns and 
really put a lot of energy and, and dedication into it. And we've started our own kind of internal 501c3 um, called the Kanji Black and Gold Fund. And really the purpose of that is to serve horses before, during, and mostly after their racing careers. And I really do, I'm biased, but I really, really do think we walk the walk when it comes to aftercare. And I really am kind of honored that my teammates and our partners really support the Kanji Black and Gold Fund and, and watch out for our horses. And, and somebody said something to me the other day that struck with me. You know, there are there are a subset of horses out there who really don't have an advocate. I want, my, me personally and our company want to be advocates for our horses and do whatever we can to make sure that they, they find a good home. And we work with a really, really good organization called the South Jersey Thoroughbred uh, Adoption Program. And I give a shout out to Erin Hurley. She's been a lifelong friend of mine and is really, really great at taking horses of any soundness level, any ability um, when they are done racing and matching them with people depending on um, what she thinks they're best suited to do, whether that's jumping or pleasure horses or dressage horses. So she's been really instrumental um, in helping us transition horses. And, you know, the, uh, for a lot of us, the thought of horses, you know, being neglected or worse keeps a lot of people up at night. And we're zealous about what we owe the horses that we've campaigned over the years. They give us our all. The reality is some of them aren't meant to be racehorses. And it doesn't really matter if they're the twilight eclipses of the world who made $2 million or if they're a horse who just didn't have the mental or physical ability to get to the races. I think we just owe it to all of them. And I'm fortunate that we have the infrastructure um, to be able to support our aftercare efforts. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's such a, a big part of my life as well. And I think so important and so great to see that so many big names in the industry are really supporting the Absolutely. aftercare side of it so much. And um, as mentioned, you have Twilight Eclipse. I know you have a couple other OTTB projects. Tell me a little bit about that as your personal um, relationship with those horses off the track. Yeah, so I actually have two horses that are totally retired that live at home. One of them is Twilight Eclipse, and I have another horse named Seminary Ridge who is 17 this year. He was not very good on the track. Um, Dallas Stewart trained him, and they just hang out. I mean, it's great looking out the window every morning from my kitchen window and seeing Twilight Eclipse. I I never take that for granted, and I do try to ride a couple of days a week. I mean, I'm very busy um, working for West Point full-time, and we have two little kids, but I do try to ride to keep myself in shape and you know, I feel like I do owe it to thoroughbreds to to be part of their aftercare. So I have a horse that was winless in a couple starts. I don't even know how much he ran. His name's Fulfill. Um, I was there when we bought him as a two-year-old, and my husband actually named him. And I got him about a year ago, and I have been concentrating on just doing dressage. So that's a lot of fun. And I actually considered getting a non-thoroughbred and kind of doing something different. But at the end of the day, I just feel like I owe them so much. I mean, I essentially owe horses my life. They've been my life. I, I always like to joke at dinner parties. I'm not super well-rounded. I, I really just know about horses. So <laughs> I didn't end up getting a different breed of horse, even though I'm doing dressage. Um, there is a stereotype that thoroughbreds aren't very good at dressage, but I'm trying to break that mold. Uh, yeah. So it's a lot of fun. They're all, they all have unique personalities. You know, you have Twilight who made $2 million and you have my horse Seminary Ridge. He was a maiden and 
Twi- or, uh, Sam definitely rules the farm. It's just kind of funny that <laughs> the vast difference in their ability and, and uh, Sam's the boss. So that's kind of cool. Uh, I, I love that. I love hearing those stories. And I know you are so busy. So we'll ask this uh, quickly at the end too, because you you have your horses at your home. You have two children, as mentioned. You have your role with West Point. Um, as I kind of said at the beginning, you are a boss in every definition uh-huh. of the word. You know how how do you balance everything? How do you um, how do you reach your own goals while being a woman in this industry as well? You know, I think a lot of it is I love West Point and I love being a mom, but the best advice I could give somebody is I didn't want my identity, my identity to be totally wrapped up into West Point or totally wrapped up in a mom. So I think for me to be able to ride even three days a week, like I have to be fanatical about my time management. I mean, I have a calendar and essentially it sounds corny, but essentially to the minute every morning, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the day. Um, and I, I have a support system. I'm lucky my parents live here part-time during the year. And, um, in particular, my mom, she's great about helping me with the kids, but I think, you know, it sounds corny that if you want something bad enough, you make it happen. But I knew like, if I want to ride, I've, I've got to be fanatical. So during the week, I'm very much all business. I, I get things done and, and try to be as dedicated as possible. And, you know, sometimes not everything happens the way I want it to. And with two kids under three, I have to be maintain a level of flexibility. But having the kids has been good for me because I, you know, sometimes I can be a little bit rigid and having to be able to be flexible and, and things changing very quickly has been good for me and has definitely helped me mature both in my professional and personal life. Uh, I love it. You do it all. You do it all so well. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and um, wishing you all the best with the new purchases from OBS last week as well. Thanks so much. We're, we're super excited about the Philly going to Christoph. I didn't uh, mention her, but I think uh, Christoph and Miguel will be super happy when she comes into the barn. I'm sure they will. We look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Have a great day. Very happy to welcome in trainer Ron Moquette, who joins me on the heels of a of a really, really cool weekend at Oaklawn Park. It was Whitmore Day, the champ Whitmore himself back on track. Ron, so happy to get a chance to talk to you about, about Whitmore today. And I guess the big question that I wanted to ask at the beginning, even now that he's retired, how special is it for you to see the impact that he continues to make on the sport? Uh, it's uh, it's very gratifying because you know I think these these athletes deserve deserve a lot of attention when their racing careers are over, and uh, you know they brought a lot of fun and excitement and joy to people and and you know it's uh, it's pretty cool to see that they actually affected or touched people that like that. I loved getting a chance to see him leading the post parade out on a track where he had had so much success. Just tell me a little bit about the day and how he was celebrated. Well, it was, um, it was really about three or four days because from the time that we brought him in, uh, you know, we have to sign him in through the stable gate. (laughs) uh, And we signed his name in. There was people like, you know, maintenance men and and security officers and uh gate crew and track personnel all wanted to come by and see him i mean like before we even got him unloaded there were people standing around wanting to you know to visit or take a picture or 
feeding her peppermint. So we had a stream of that for about, you know, it, seriously, the whole time he was in, in the Whitmore barn, he had, he had visitors and, and uh, people coming by to, to hang out with him. I know your wife, Laura, obviously has a very soft spot for him and was a huge part of his development throughout. Um, tell me a little bit about what she's doing with him now that he's retired. Well, we, you know, we give him time off and we're trying to, to figure out exactly what the next step is, whether or not it's a, uh, you know, a, a jumper dressage. I think we're going to do the, the uh, one little deal where they do the, the trail competition. Mm -hmm. I think that's what she's wanting to do first and then go on to something else. But we, we basically just want him to do whatever he wants to do. We want, I mean, it, it, Whitmore is the, is the one that people recognize and they know and all that, but that's basically what we do with any of them when they're retired is try to figure out what, what profession are they going to go to next that, that ensures the, the longevity of happiness. And, and uh, Go ahead, sorry. You have to do that by, you have to get there by asking the horse, you know. And on that note, I think that there is a stereotype that's changing a little bit in kind of more of the show world about thoroughbreds going on to do something else, but they really are so versatile in your experience as well. I mean, tell me a little bit about how they can adapt to do another job. Yeah, and it's just, it has to do with, with basically we got to retrain the horse, but we have to retrain people's perception mm -hmm. um you know you have to figure out first there's horses no matter what there's some are good at everything and some that are good at a few things and you got to figure out which ones are good at what for their next their next adventure and if you if you have the patience and the and the horsemanship you can get these animals to do about anything and and you know we're lucky to be involved with with horses that are that noble and that honest and you know are they high strung when they come off the racetrack sure but can you retrain them to do just about anything we're finding more and more that that answer is yes and uh you know i'm here for it i want people to understand that these these horses are not just fast and yeah. you know they're they're brave they're smart they're they're very giving couldn't agree more and i i, I love seeing them transition into a new chapter and I I, uh, I wanted to know too is Whitmore still have all the sass now off the track that we saw from him on the track yeah yeah that's uh <laughs> he's uh he's a hundred percent you know as as full of attitude as he ever was and you know luckily he was a he was a good boy the other day and you know I think that was one of the things that I kept hearing through the crowd you know they they were like man, he's being so good. He's, he's doing so good. And, you know, luckily that has a lot to do with just how good Laura is. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with, there was a lot of focus in on teaching him what we wanted very quickly. And, uh, you know, it's just proven that even a horse that, that loves to show out and, and will argue with you about anything is, is more than willing to, to give you what you want if you ask them the right way. Mm -hmm. 
and he gave you some tremendous thrills on the racetrack too of course became champion sprinter and, and won the breeders cup sprint but you've been right there with him right from the beginning i was looking back through his past performances and when he won on debut at churchill i think he was like 15 to 1 or something like that did you always have high hopes for him at the start yeah um you know, I, I always let my clients and, and gamblers and everybody know is that you can have the most athletic, gifted horse and everything is perfect. And then if they don't have the will or the desire to win, then then you're not going to win. So what you have to do is is you've got to you've got to be optimistic that they're going to going to bring that uh, athleticism and talent and they're going to mix it with the desire and the want to and they're going to be you know the best they can be the, and i always thought that he had the athleticism and the and the you know and the talent but i was worried that you know is he gonna is he gonna argue with us all the time during the races i mean because sometimes they do sometimes and then sometimes it takes them two or three times to figure it out and you know we we battle a thing where everybody's quick to judge a horse you know based on win percentages and first time out percentages and second time off a layoff percent we always battle that but the truth of the matter is is these are all different animals and some of them come along quicker around quicker than others and some of them are more precocious luckily he really liked to run and he really liked to win and he was athletically gifted enough to do it Tell me a little bit about that challenge with the the mental aspect because it's something that I always find so fascinating. You can only see so much at the sales or or when they're a yearling at the farm or whatever the case may be. And when they're in that training regimen, I'm sure that's something that you and your staff have to be on top of every day and what horses can handle it and which ones you have to kind of be a little bit more careful with. Well, first off, I'm here for it and I'll tell you why. If it was that every every horse ran exactly like they looked, then the sheiks or the oil tycoons and the queens and kings would win every race. There wouldn't be anybody like me, just a you know a, a poor guy from the border of Arkansas, Oklahoma, ever get a horse like this. Yeah. So that's the great equalizer: is we have to figure out which ones have the desire to go along with it and. You know, you go to the two-year-old training cell and they all go basically within a second of each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them you go up there and see they, they work and they, they, they work really fast, and, but they don't, they don't carry it. And then, you know, that's the kind of the great equalizers trying to figure out who's capable of doing what and, and uh, who's going to excel. And so I like it. Mm -hmm. And it does sometimes mean that we have to do more work you know i'm okay for that i don't have a a program per se i, I try to say it's kind of like you know each horse is its own individual and we try to get a diet for that individual uh, some horses don't eat, need to eat as much as others some need to eat more of a, a different type of of diet uh, you know and then same thing with exercise you know whitmore in his four-year-old year I, I barely turned him around to gallop. I just jogged him most of it. Wow. And and that was simply because I thought I thought we were developing bone. 
he he was chronic uh chronic heels to where i had to keep him shot a different way and and i was like he's running well why do i got to do anything else he's doing fine he's athletically okay to do this so everybody was asking well why don't you turn him around well i did when i worked him and i ran him but that was the individual way of thinking instead of a program way of thinking that i think helped him you know develop and then yeah you know, like the next year i gradually turned him around and started galloping him again and and normal stuff but if it was a program deal where they gallop for three days they work on the on the seventh day they run on the 14th day you know whitmore wouldn't have made it yeah. and that's what these things i when i come around that's what it was it wasn't a, a big outfit that that had a huge program and it was a bunch of different horses with people trying to figure out what made each individual horse its most successful definition of itself you know mm -hmm. and it seemed like whitmore really loved oakland too seven times stakes winner over that track i know it's it's like home for you was it something about the track you think that he flourished there or or was it just mainly you know you put him in the right races as well well you know some of the toughest races i've ever run in with whitmore was at oakland yeah uh so you know i think it had a lot to do with the time of the year i think he ran better in the cooler months than he did in the summer uh, it, i always seen him even though he won some nice races in the summer i always seen him start to you know i i don't know if it's show a little fatigue or or whatever maybe he didn't handle the heat as well as as you know some of the other ones but i think the weather had something to do with it and you know, I think the track, uh, you know, maybe coming off the layoff and he's he was just freshened every year because we would always send him at the end of November or, or the first of November, we would send him to uh, Rebecca Makers for 45 days and or 50. And then we would bring him back in. It seemed like, you know, I don't know whether it was the rejuvenation of, of coming off a of vacation or, or the weather or maybe all that included. Mm -hmm. But uh, he definitely runs some of his best races, um, I think. It, not saying that he couldn't run other places, because if you look at his race record, some of the craziest things he did was like a Preakness Day, whenever he won the Pimlico race. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the races up at Keeneland, the race at uh, Saratoga where he beat City of Life was mm -hmm. was awesome. So it's he he you know, preferred running short distances where speed was involved up front to where he could come get them late. And it seemed like that happened a lot at Oakland. Of course, he won the Breeders' Cup Sprint. And as we're talking, you know, there are so many other facets of his career and a long career, and I'm sure so many highs and lows you've experienced with him. But would you say that that Breeders' Cup Sprint win was kind of a, a pinnacle, a highlight in, in seeing all of that hard work and patience with this horse come together? Yeah, I, there's two different ways of looking at that. First mm -hmm. off, that was my goal. Yeah. You know, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that was that was Whitmore's best race. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he'd run a much better races in other places, you know, and, but I think that was my goal and my dream was to win the Breeders' Cup Sprint. And I really wanted to do it with Whitmore. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd ran so tough in so many races there. And, and I was like, 
you know, for me selfishly, I wanted to win it. And for him, I wanted him to get the accolades that went in on that stage would provide. And so I had several reasons for wanting to, to let that be the crescendo, you know, but, uh, you know, some of the most rewarding races were, you know, after the Kentucky Derby, he, he come out of the Kentucky Derby with a chip in his knee. Mm -hmm. And, and we, you know, luckily it happened in the Derby and we were able to, the next day we, we took the chip out and we did right by him. And if you notice, he was off for a while and we'd come back and, and whenever he run his first out off the layoff was at aqueduct. That was a big race because that showed me that, that he was still, you know, wanting to be a racehorse. Yeah. And then the other one, the big race was whenever we started that, I think we run one six in a row. We started that every time we, we ran, there was another big horse that we had to contend with. And his, the first time we won the, the uh, hot spring stakes was a, a big deal. And then I, I guess the coming out of, uh, coming off, off of our first defeat at Oakland, whenever we, we got beat uh, by my Tolly, who mm. was a pretty good horse, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, whenever we come back the next year, and we won his fourth hot springs, you know, it was kind of like regaining the, the throne kind of, you know, so there was a lot of different big races that he provided for me for, you know, for a lot of different reasons, you know, have a horse that qualified for the Kentucky Derby and, uh, and to, you know, to do what he did and to, to do it with the longevity and the, and really the overall consistency was, was a feather in everybody that works for me's cap. Um, you know, I was making the calls, but you know, it takes a lot of good information and a lot of good horsemen working with us to do it. So it was, it was huge. Of course, this is racing. It's always looking for the next winner. Um, I saw that you had a win on Whitmore day, which is pretty cool too. And you keep going, but, what would you say Whitmore means for you and for your career, even if you do end up with another champion down the line? Well, we certainly hope that we get the opportunity to have another yeah. good horse. Uh, you know, uh, the opportunities tend to go, the lion's share go to the same people every year. Mm -hmm. And I think our sport does well whenever it gets introduced to the to the different people on occasion you know i think it gets a little mundane seeing the, the same people run horses seven times and they go away to stallion or or you know the same you know, there's no there's no drama in it so i love selfishly for me i love the opportunity to think that we're going to get us another one but whitmore i guess to say he put us on the map and, you know, we were in the Kentucky Derby before we run second in the Arkansas Derby with American Pharaoh. We've been in the Breeders' Cup and run third with Gentleman's Bet. You know, we've been around. We've won grade one races with with other people's cast offs. So it's still, you know, nobody knew who we were, really. And at least now they say, well, that's that guy that trained the champion mm -hmm. or that's that group of people that that had the the horse that 
ran as a two-year-old all the way up to an eight-year-old and did well. You know, I think that they selfishly, again, for me, it's a, it's kind of a business card for what, to what my group of people can do when given the opportunity with a good horse. Um, I, I will always be grateful and he, you know, thank goodness he's staying with us and he's going to be, you know, a, a living monument of what, uh, yeah. of what can do when everybody makes the right decisions and, and we get a little lucky and, you know, get the opportunity. Well, I am among his many, many fans and uh, really excited to continue following him off the track too. And thank you for taking the time to talk a little bit about him today. It was really, really fun to have you on. Thank you for having us. And that wraps up another episode of In the Ring. Um, a huge thank you to Aaron and Ron, my guests for this week. And I absolutely loved getting the chance to reflect back a little bit on Whitmore's career. And uh, just a quick story, as we just heard Ron's interview, I remember when Whitmore won the Breeders' Cup Sprint. I know he knocked a lot of people out of the pick five or whatever it could be the case. And I hadn't bet him, uh, but I remember I was working for the Breeders' Cup. I was covering the races that day, and I was standing, I'll never forget it, right outside the winter circle at Keeneland. And I saw him closing and just running away from the field, and I was jumping up and down, screaming for him like it was a horse that, that I had bet or that I had an association with. And it was just because I was such a big fan of his and I think he was such a cool horse raced until the age of eight and um, I loved hearing what Ron had to say about his longevity and the fact that he stuck around and got to create such a fan base that he did so really really wonderful that Oakland was honoring Whitmore this past weekend and that his connections are continuing to keep him in the spotlight at least a little bit and um, giving us all an opportunity to continue following Whitmore. So I hope that we all may have the opportunity to be around a horse like Whitmore throughout our lives. But as I mentioned, I uh, love doing this episode today. Happy to be back on the in the ring grind as always. If you have any suggestions or things that you'd be interested in hearing about, please send me a message. Um, please feel free to share this episode on social media. Um, if you haven't already, go check out all of the other great content on the In The Money Media website. Sign up for the newsletter there. Lots of great stuff going on with my colleagues over there. And we'll be back in a few days, back next week, with some exciting content leading up to the Florida Derby and some other big Kentucky Derby prep races. So that should be a lot of fun. But for now, I am Acacia Clement, still getting used to that and uh we will see you on the next episode of in the ring thanks everyone <laughs>